In 2015, I was at a party in Whistler, Whistler, Canada, and I met this kid named Darrell O'Carroll. And he asked me, what would I do if I won the lotto? And I says, uh, I'd go to Africa, driving a cherry picker, handing out parcels. And I asked him what he would do. And he says, he'd get a pirate ship and he'd sail the seven seas. And here we are, sitting on his pirate ship called the Ran, in the middle of the Irish Ocean. So, Dara, let's talk a bit about yourself. So, where, where are you from? From uh, Nookov Avenue, South Dublin. South of Dublin, okay. And um, so, you're a chef. You started cooking in Dublin, is that correct? Yeah, I began cooking from the age of 18, but originally started as a butcher from the age of 16. A butcher from the age of 16, okay. So, um, and what, what, what was the first kitchen you walked into? or what So, Face Street Social by Dylan McGrath. Face Street Social. Was where you? I started, then moved on to the greenhouse. The greenhouse and the greenhouse is a two Michelin star. Currently a two Michelin. Portland. When I was there, it was wasn't the Michelin star. When I was there, but he was chasing it. Chasing it. So now he's a two Michelin star, and that was the, that was the last kitchen you worked in in Dublin. In Dublin before I went travelling, yeah. So, so then in um you left you left uh, Dublin in two thousand and fifteen. Would have been two thousand and fifteen at the age of eighteen. At the age of eighteen. And what um what made you leave Dublin? Why did, why did you want to leave Dublin? So I was exploring with psychedelics when I was very young. And um, from my exploration of psychedelics, it just blew my mind into wanting to know more about the world. I okay, wanting okay. to know more about different cultures, different ideas, different creative minds around the globe. So my ambition for travel was created through psychedelics and meditation. And then that ambition led me through a culinary trade that I could use worldwide, that I could jump from place to place inheriting these cultures and taking in all this creativity around the world yeah yeah okay so um so then you used that to uh you were you were working in the kitchen in whistler but um it was a, it was a ski season you were doing but you didn't get a chance to ski much as far as i can remember because you were constantly working hard and a lot of people don't understand that part of uh traveling so if you talk a bit, a bit about that about how hard it is working in the kitchen over there and um in what, what, what kitchen was it in whistler yeah so i was working at the barefoot bistro and we'd have early starts, late finishes. So time to ski wasn't really optional. And when you're days off, like you're so wrecked from pushing every day because service was bigger than the ski service. Like yeah, yeah. When, when you had service like the Champions League final, when customers come in, you're buzzing, you're ready to go, you're on the ball, you're sharp, like everything goes out your head and it's like a meditation. When you're in the zone, you're in the zone and it's like playing any sport, really. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, no, it's crazy because I find a lot of people don't see that side of traveling. They see pictures of paradise and palm trees and they don't understand them um, about all the graft and the, the, the hard work you put in. But um, so, so after Whistler, you've done a season in Whistler and then you decided uh, to go to go Mexico. Why, why was it that you, you chose Mexico? Was that just following your heart or what, what was what was calling to go to go to Mexico? Yeah, Mexico was a calling actually for uh, an ayahuasca experience in South America. But that, that was a calling that I wanted to go to Mexico to journey through Central America and have a big trip before I had a final trip in Peru. Yeah. So kind of inherit all the culture of Mexico, Central America, and then get to South America and finish that off. Where where ayahuasca? So uh, you, you, how much did you how much did you land in Mexico with? So when I when I landed in Mexico, probably had about three grand to my name. Yeah. And. It was about two years later I would have flew out of Peru. 
two years later you would have flew out of Peru. So okay, let's start with uh, with Mexico because it's really um it's an inspirational uh, story from um landing in Mexico to hitchhiking with um uh, newlyweds. So what what was that like or where, where did that start? Tell us about the crazy journey in Mexico where you were finding yourself. Um, yeah, that was some crack. Like I went into Mexico City. And I was having a crack in Mexico City, just going around, crashing around, couch surfing. Yeah, yeah. Cooking for families, cooking for a different culture, getting enrolled in the local culture. They were cooking for me, I was cooking for them. Yeah. And just inheriting the, the local cuisine, you know. And then I decided I was going to start working my way through Mexico. So when I started to do that, I started to look at Rideshare. And from Rideshare, I got a very unique experience through Rideshare. I uh, I was with two newlyweds. Now they're in their fifties, late sixties. Yeah. And uh, both had kids on both sides, but they were getting married and going on a a driving honeymoon. Yeah. But they were they're gonna drive through Mexico for three months, visiting all these different destinations. But one of their destinations was Cancun, but it wasn't really Cancun. It was off the beaten track for them. And I was hitching to Cancun, sharing money for diesel. And yeah, uh, yeah. along the way, well, the first three days, the car broke down. So we had three days back in the house to get to get to get to know each other, like you know. <laughs> and then uh, after that, we kind of got to know each other pretty well after those three days. And then we had another three days to Cancun. Halfway through that, they were like, "If you want to come for the rest of the trip, you're more than welcome." So I was like, "Fuck it, I may as well hitch it." So I, I hitched the honeymoon for three weeks. Three weeks. Awesome, and they're awesome. they're they're in the hotels, you know, nice hotels. I was sleeping in the car, you know. <laughs> so. Uh, you spent you spent there you spent three weeks with them there and um, then from there you were uh, you mentioned you were uh, doing woofing volunteering at in Ireland or yeah I lost my wallet and then well I was I lost my wallet and I was completely broke at that stage like you know yeah. I had my tent and everything packed in my bag I had my knives so I could still work so I went to woofing and from there I met an amazing couple that were working on a sustainable project yeah and, and where, where, where was this that was in an island called Cozumel Cozumel Caribbean coast Caribbean yeah. coast yeah yeah and there was a guy there a Portuguese guy that had been cycling from central Mexico and was planning on cycling all the way to Argentina yeah now I said to him he was like I'm gonna cycle if you want to join you're more than welcome so I didn't have any money at the time and I wasn't making any money on the woven farm I was just getting accommodation and everything yeah. so I had a little bit of money just to get this tiny little girl's bike that I could afford you know and it, the wheels were punctured and everything you know I paid full call for it and I fixed the <laughs> wheels a little girl's bike what colour was it? The pink and purple <laughs> and had I leaving on a basket on the front like, so you're you know? cycling from the one place of Mexico where, where Cozumel down the Caribbean coast down south yeah. to uh, where we ended up in a place called Bacalar on a little girl's bike with punctured wheels and yeah, that, yeah? yeah no gears either <laughs> and you, from there you went uh, you were you moved to from there I was sitting in a cafe you me and uh, Fabio Portuguese yeah. guy we were using uh, internet and a guy came over and he was like do you want to go on a sailing tour and we were like nah we're on a budget he was like oh I can bring you out on a five hour tour bring you to cenote snorkeling packed lunch everything yeah, yeah. we were like nah we're on a budget like you know we're flat out going down on the bikes we have our tents around in the field around there like you know and we were we were cycling food from a lot of the food markets like a lot of food that was being thrown out and we were yeah. just going to the back of the markets yeah you hadn't got a penny pluck, you were plucking, to yeah. just plucking out any food that was going around like you know and there was decent enough stuff now in hot Mexico. It's not as decent as in cold countries, but you know, yeah, it's still yeah. edible, like, you know? Yeah. And uh, this fella offered us a job. He was like, I need sailors for the season. I can have you paid, place for you to stay, 
and we jumped on it like a light he had two broken boats that were unrigged he said right if you can rig them fix them and get them going and i'll train you sailing boats yeah this was a 18 foot catamaran and a 24 foot monohull okay so uh so talk to us about about that sailing experience so he gave you he basically says if you fix the boat you'll um he'll give you a job and you can sort out you can do your own tours on that yeah 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 so after a week of me he came down with all the rigging and everything yeah he put it down he was like great go at it and at this stage you hadn't a clue how to sail or anything a little bit in school but that was with real small toppers yeah not, you know, major, no no yeah. i knew the dynamics of it but yeah. nothing nothing to the balance of bigger boats you know yeah and uh from there i rigged the boat after a week i rigged the boat we gave, trained us for about two hours and then that was literally the two hour training and uh then he was like, right, these are off. Go out yourself. I haven't got the time. He was busy doing other tours and doing selling different tours, things. Yeah, and yeah. So he said, uh, give yourselves a week training and then I'll do a run with you. And he gave us about three days and then he just arrives with tourists that he's after getting. Because you were unexperienced on the sailing boat. You were expected to take these tourists out on the sailing boat, yeah? Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> it all went well, like. Uh, well, first tour went well, second tour not so well. So why did the second tour not not, uh, not go so well? Tell me, us about me, that. So I had a, the mast wasn't bolted into the boat properly. Yeah. So halfway through the tour, the whole mast came down in the middle of the tour. <laughs> so it was touch and go the whole time because I was always taking tours with no engine. Yeah. Very little experience and... Uh, just going to win it yeah it was quite, quite a lot of pressure as well like you know yeah, so yeah, course, you, yeah. have, you have four people on board or four to eight eight on the big boat yeah four on the little boat and uh most of the other tours went really well like and then we started just started going on adventures with people like if they were up for having a full day i'd go out with them for a full day and we'd just all go out and have the crack yeah yeah and then uh yeah there was one uh one tour that went pretty bad with uh, five Mexicans. I took it fairly late, and they're fairly big Mexicans. So I was cycling around all day in the sun, no tourists anywhere to sell tours to. So I'm cycling around, cycling around, can't find anyone. And then these five biggish Mexicans arrived, and I was like, "Fuck it, they'll be grand." And we all, <laughs> <laughs> so I get them all on the boat, and halfway through the tour, I noticed how one punting on the catamaran was starting to sink. The steer and everything started to stop working. So then uh, I realized it's taking on water, but I didn't think it was going to take on water as much and as quick and fast as it did. So halfway through the tour, the whole side of the boat went down and then everyone was balancing the boat. So a whole back of the boat went under water. <laughs> then everyone moved to the front of the boat. All of us to the front of the boat. So the boat started water. sinking. So the boat started sinking. And mind you, there's a lot of sharks in the water in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the water that you don't really want everyone swimming around, you know? <laughs> so I had to tell the two men that were on board and it was a, a fair 100 meter swim, like, you know? Yeah. So I had to tell that, lads, are you up for it? I'm very sorry about this, but shit happens, you know? You have to swim. You're going to have to swim back, like, you know? And uh, then... I was like to the girls because at the time I hadn't got tours for two weeks so it was fairly tight on cash you know I was yeah, like yeah. do you just want to finish the tour and I'm balancing this half sunk boat trying to finish off the tour just to get it done <laughs> and I did it did a half price like you know what I mean yeah yeah and then how did, how did you get the boat back to land how did, how did it oh I was able to sail it because when the two the lads got off was, oh, it was it was, it was a better to, but it was still half under the water but you could still sail it like yeah yeah we were all kind of sitting in the water on it but you could get it get it going like you know yeah and um so from from there uh 
So what what is it that um, with sailing you speak for as long as I uh, know you for the first time I met you you spoke so uh, passionate and so positive about um, about sailing. You always um, the way you spoke about sailing it was um, it's in your heart and how, how how that led you to to where you are now. What is it that you really love and enjoy about sailing that out in the sea? So sailing is a it, for me is a is a form of meditation and a form of a transit of energy where you you use nature's force and triangulate it into momentum that you can actually control yeah and that that for me i inherit the same energy as the boat as in the power of the wind and the momentum that comes from utilizing the wind and utilizing natural energy forces for me it's like a, a meditation that you can inherit the heightened energy of wind and its power into your essence of being yeah yeah so for me it, sailing is kind of like one i love adventures and love doing mad kind of trips yeah where uh you're kind of out there alone in solitude but you're kind of with the wind as well so you're not really alone and uh the sea is just an excitement it's like going into the desert there so it has that thrill but also has that solitude and that silence and that amount of patience that is needed when you don't have the wind it's not all kind of adrenaline and it's more sitting thinking and a lot of patience so that was kind of the that's that's why we're so passionate yeah so um so then after mexico you left mexico you said you traveled there central america you spent you spent two years you spent two years in um in central america from you left mexico then you made you made your way down towards uh peru did you live anywhere else down that way or did you just head straight to peru from mexico or yeah went through guatemala Guatemala, yeah. And ended up in Guatemala City. Now, when I was going through Guatemala, I was just hitchhiking, parking up on the tent, because I had made a fair bit of money with the sailing. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was so able to we're, save we're, um, up. We're, we're hitchhiking. A lot of uh, a lot of people don't really understand the process. They think like it's just bums that do it that don't have money. But there's there's a bigger story to it, isn't there? Why, why, why do you think you hitchhike just to, yeah. to make characters or hitchhiking was to get into the local people, the local culture, and. Oh, it just opens doors all over the place. Like when I when I was hitchhiking, I didn't only just get a ride. People were like very interested in your story and very interested in bringing you back to meet their families, and they they were just as happy. You were making their day just as they were making yours. Like you know, so meeting locals, going back to the house, and we'd have big family dinners, and sometimes I was going back to people's houses, cooking them up a storm, and they would be all very happy. There's a chef in the house, so I'd be yeah. very happy. I wasn't out in the field, like you know. And um, so, so you, you mentioned earlier about uh, so you landed in Peru. You were searching to do uh, ayahuasca, and um, you got there. You had literally no money. You had broken clothes on your back, and um, a family um, basically put you up. So tell tell us about landing in Peru. What was that like to, to land there with, with nothing and just searching for yourself? What what was that like? Yeah, see, everywhere I was before that, it wasn't a city. Yeah, I was always kind of staying on the outskirts of cities, and it's a lot easier. To survive on the outskirts of cities with no money than in a city, because when you're in a city with no money, yeah, it's uh, 
it's quite intense because then there's a lot of people in that situation but luckily a woman had a glance in my eye and she could kind of tell what I was in I was kind of in the middle of a city I couldn't put up a tent anywhere I had this ripped up bag ripped up clothes and I had just got to the end, last destination of the whole trip and I looked like I just got to the last situation of a mad trip like you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. and uh, from there she gave me accommodation. She was like, you can come back to my house and everything. I told her a bit about the story. Now, at that stage, I could speak kind of Spanish because she didn't speak English. Yeah. And uh, she gave me accommodation for five days just to give me that window to find volunteering opportunity in a hostel. And I found that volunteering opportunity in the hostel and I was working there for five days. And then from that opportunity, gave me a window to go into restaurants. And then I went into restaurants. Well, I was looking for a job in a restaurant for about an hour. And I was in a kitchen with an apron on. That's kind of the way the industry works, really. And what, um, what, what was... Uh, so the industry, obviously, was a lot different there from Western culture to, to cooking in Peru. What was what was it like cooking in Peru? Did you did you learn much? Did you enjoy it? Were you treated like a, a Westerner? Were you treated like a local? Or what What, what did you like experience about that? Yeah, I think it, your, your energy kind of projects and attracts who you are. Like, you know, so I, I was treated very much like a local in the kitchen and... My skills were fairly up to scratch yeah. with the skills that were going around in the kitchen at the time. So it was a, le- a level of respect as well yeah. for the discipline that you have inherited from, from others. So in the kitchens, I got on very well, but it was very tough. Like you're doing six days, 12 hour days for six days. And then you're, I was doing five hour shifts, five days a week in the hostel. So you were, you know, it was like 17 hours a day that you were kind of on the go. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so talk to us about how did you go from let's let's go into a bit of detail about a lot of people don't understand the psychedelics and uh, the ayahuasca uh, now ayahuasca is becoming 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 a trend a trad everyone is starting to uh, a fad sorry everyone is starting to do it so um how did you go from the hellfire club having a trip and psychedelics to ayahuasca in peru if you could talk to us uh, if you could talk to us talk to us through that yeah so i i was up in the hellfire club when i was quite young where i had a huge psychedelic experience which gave me visionary projections of stuff i didn't perceive at the time but as i started to get older those projections became more clear and those visions were were quite intuitive to my state of mind and how my state of mind would develop as a human being and as my knowledge of the the living environment and the respect for the living environment around me. Before then, I had no respect or no knowledge of that everything was actually alive around me. I seen trees, I seen bees, I seen birds, but didn't have any knowledge that it was all connected in one living source. So then it, it opened my eyes to those medicines that can give you those intuitive visions of connectivity and of futuristic paths that you can follow so i started to kind of go down a meditative see meditation was also enrolled deep meditation also is a a psychedelic in itself yeah yeah that those medicines are great and they do enhance your say psyche ability or psychic seeing but within deep meditation it's very similar but it's it's a more longer more disciplined more rewarding path to go through than the psychedelics the psychedelics are great but what they give you is an overall flash of spiritualism they give you it 
but they don't give you the discipline the rawness that is needed to create the humbleness and the kind of purity of self yeah they can give you an ego of spiritualism and they can show you how everything is connected and they can show you realms that you would never even thought were existed but you have to be careful because they can also give you an ego of spiritualism that can't be found through it can only be found through the disciplines of meditation and the disciplines of discipline yeah where a lot of people go away and they take psychedelics and then they're suddenly a guru in seven different aspects but they don't realize that the, the pure essence of disciplines within spiritualism is a lot more important than just doing kind of psychedelics just doing it for, for the sake of it yeah yeah, yeah. and um, so so from there we're, we're ayahuasca in peru because um, a lot of people um is really in- interested in that that uh, topic and they're kind of uneducated you know especially from where we come from everybody wants to go to peru and do ayahuasca so if you could talk about that what, what's uh, what was your experience with ayahuasca compared to the psychedelics yeah ayahuasca was a, a very owning experience where you and the kind of meeting the mother really or meeting the the supremacy of nature yeah and going in there and like kind of letting all sense of anxiety or anger or anything just release and it was a very visual very strong visually feeling body mind it was quite traumatic at times very dark and would go through your darkest thoughts and bring them apparently on front of you yeah you know dark thoughts you might have about things or people or anything they would like put them right out and you would i was seeing myself saying things to people that i had only thought about you yeah. know and it was kind of flickering a kind of a book through my life previous and examining it from an outer perspective so i was like i was standing over myself looking at myself as a as an older person and i was looking at this younger form of me and after that then i kind of started to grow into this older form of me and i had always looked back on the younger form from that experience really yeah yeah so um so that's it for episode one we're gonna do three episodes so next week's episodes if you could talk about talk about that give them don't give away too much now give what what happened in what happens in next week's episode so next week's episode we're going back to dublin for a little while then we're gonna hop over to stockholm then from stockholm we're gonna head to norway yeah and then um in norway about how you sailed from norway to dublin nearly dying seeing a banshee and everything else (laughs) so we'll see you tune in we'll see you next tuesday at nine o'clock for uh, episode two